Hi, welcome to Botanical, a podcast about California native plants, and I'm your host, Matt Marquier. The plant that we're looking at today, Joshua Tree, has always perplexed me for its name. Where does it come from? Was someone, you know, maybe some type of pioneer coming out and trying to manifest their destiny? You know, their name was Joshua, and they saw this tree and was like, you know what? That's the Joshua Tree. I just see myself in this tree so much, it's, you know, seems like the externalization of myself in tree form. But this is actually not too far from the story behind the name. So let's imagine some pioneers entering into a arid, blank slate of a landscape, and they're lost. They need a guide and a sense of comfort, a sense that they're going in the right direction. Now, these people are also part of a new religious movement. They're all Mormons, and they're walking, they're walking, and the sun sets, the sky turns to night, and as I imagine it, the sky is clear, the stars are out, and the moon is full, allowing illumination on these unusual figures in the sand, these upright figures with things that seem like arms pointing up towards the sky. Now, these Mormon pioneers, they followed each one, going from figure to figure, and from distance they mistook them for Joshua. Now, Joshua for them wasn't some brash, young 49er upstart who had some sort of profound personal experience with the tree, like I was mentioning or thinking of earlier, but rather the biblical figure. And they saw the tree as a guide, a guide with outstretched arms to God, much like Joshua was in a passage from the Bible where he led the Israelites in their conquest against Canaan. Now, with all this, there's a reasonable and very strong suspicion of this, of this particular story as to why it has its name with some critics, one in particular from, I believe, the 20s. It says it might even be just kind of like a manufactured explanation for why it's called the Joshua Tree. And he thinks it might be kind of like a garbled version of a native name for the plant. And in addition to this, to me, it's it seems significant that the Mormon church, as far as I can tell, has not taken the Joshua Tree to be a potent symbol. I just think that's somewhat curious. It's, um, you know, for such a beautiful and remarkable plant and for a story that is shared so much, for why it has its name, you would think, at least for me, that there would be some type of possession of it through Mormon culture. But all I could really find was a rather informative article on a church website about the plant. Other than that, I couldn't see anything. And of course, it's not out of the ordinary for plant or tree to attain a religious or spiritual significance. Quickly, but gently, we can trot the globe and Look at the Bodhi tree, the sacred fig, which has become a symbolic stand-in for the Buddha's enlightenment, or the palm tree, which is a symbol of heaven for Christians, or specifically on Palm Sunday with a palm leaf as a sacred object that refers to the faithful's victory over their enemies. So... So there is, you know, an uh, existing precedent for 
a tree becoming imbued with a spiritual significance, um, specifically one coming from particular narratives or experiences that have, you know, helped shape perhaps the religious culture. But that seems to be, as far as I can tell, again, it, it may be in some way, I don't know, but seems to be absent from Joshua Tree's connection to Mormons outside of its name. Or, you know, it also could be a, like that critic mentioned, it's a myth or legend, a kind of constructed answer for how the name got there in the first place. So maybe it is kind of an arcane name. Um, and at the same time, you know, maybe the tree has attained its own type of spiritual relation to people and to its land, especially if you're a huge U2 fan and you just absolutely love uh, the Joshua Tree album. I actually found out that the tree that's featured on that album has a plaque in front of it that says you have found what you're looking for in reference to the song although sadly that tree has since died and all that remains is the plaque so it kind of brings a kind of dark new meaning but no matter the case the joshua tree has this interesting um kind of almost like liminal connection to the spiritual realm and in the same way i think the tree has its own kind of liminal connection to reality they just seem so of another place and yet they're recognizable at the same time so it seems easy to suggest here that the joshua tree is a native that leaves a powerful impression on people enough to name an album after what they think it represents or to mistake it as a figure really important to them or even having a whole national park the joshua tree national park named after it we'll get into some of the extraordinary elements of this native um as natives go it has an almost endless fountain of unusual fascinating and kind of funny stories behind it so we'll get into that but before we do that i just want to say thank you to everyone who has been tuning into this show and has been providing your support and have been sending me very thoughtful and sweet messages telling me that you like the show and that you can't wait for the next episode that really means a lot to me. And I also want to take this time to say, if you're interested, I have recently opened up a place to donate to support the future production of uh, the show, of future episodes. Anything that would be donated would go into maybe getting new equipment or maybe new software or potentially even um, helping produce some material for fans and also to help promote this show and promote the show's message, such as maybe like a sticker or maybe like a t-shirt, something like that. Of course, no pressure whatsoever, and the show is not going to stop. I just wanted to make a mention of it. But for now, again, just thank you so much for listening. It means so much to me, and I love seeing all the super positive feedback. Um, makes me feel really good. It makes me feel really good that I'm pursuing this. So with that, let's get into the episode. Brevifolia Engelmann. Now, Yucca, I have 
up until recently pronounced yucca, but I learned that yucca is actually a separate word, it's a particular type of root, and that yucca is for the genus. So it's yucca, which almost sounds like you're kind of like, it almost seems like an expression of disgust to me. Ah, oh, yucca. Ugh. But anyway, that is the scientific Linnaean name for Joshua tree. And I bring up Linnaeus, that old botanist, because in 2009, the Botanical Journal of the Linnaean Society released an article with the wondrous title, A Subfamilial Classification for the Expanded Asparagalian Families, Amaryllidaceae, Asparagaceae, and Xanthoraceae. I'm sure I'm not producing those accurately, but I think you get the idea. And this is important for Joshua Tree because it was formerly in the Gavaceae family, which if you already know what Joshua Tree looks like, it seems fitting that they be in the agave family. You know, they, you know, you can see some of these to the century plant, to agave. They look, you know, these plants look kind of like succulents. They look as if, you know, maybe slightly alien or sparse, as if they should be in the desert, which is exactly where Joshua Tree grows. But this journal put it as a subfamily of the asparagaceae family, which means asparagus. So now, according to Linnaean Society, the Joshua Tree is a part of the subfamily to the asparagus family. So now we get the term agavoidei, or agavoidei, which sounds like a robot agave to me, agavoidei. Um, but anyway, just a funny little look into the world of Linnaean botanical classification systems, which can change quickly, and you have to relearn new systems and how or why this, the whole reclassification happened. I remember, actually, in my plant D course, my professor was kind of annoyed by some of the new classifications and actually told us that since it changed enough, he was just going to teach us the old way because it had been that way for so long that he just thought it would be easier for us to learn. But anyway, that's kind of a digression. The Joshua tree, um, it's a monocot tree, which means it has a single embryonic leaf with its seed. The monocot also, just as a frame of reference, is kind of like a grass or an orchid. And it's also an angiosperm, which is just uh, another way of saying it. It's a flowering plant. It is an indicator species for the Mojave Desert, where it's endemic. It's also found in western Arizona, southeastern California, southern Nevada, and southwest Utah, where uh, those Mormons probably encountered it on their maybe mythical journey. Uh, it may also be seen in the Sonoran Desert and maybe the San Bernardino Mountains. But indicator species, in case we don't know what that means, is that it is an important keystone species for the ecosystem, and that's because of its use as a place for habitat or as a home for a lot of species. For birds, they use it as a nesting ground. Lizards use it as a place to hide and to hunt. And then a lot of species actually feast on its flowers and on its fruit. So let's talk about that fruit for a second, because it actually appears at the base of the inflorescence of a Joshua tree. And the inflorescence is just where all of its flowers are produced, and it's almost like on this like vertical stalk. And when the top flowers are in bloom, that means that the fruit is going to appear, and it is ripe when it is a darker tan color. They generally grow in clusters to about two to four inches long each. And when they're mature, they can be roasted and they have somewhat of a sweet 
candy flavor as I've I've read. I have never tried it myself, but after reading this and hearing people talk about what it tastes like, I definitely want to try it. So let's go into to get like a better picture of what the Joshua tree is and maybe to help us understand it if you know, hopefully we all get to go to the park soon. Um branching is that usually more extensive on older trees. So if you see a bunch just kind of growing out, raising their arms towards the sky, you're probably looking at an older tree. And this is actually, this brings up an interesting question surrounding the Joshua tree, because although we can tell different maturity levels between trees, it's almost impossible to date these trees because as some might say that maybe they're not even a tree, they actually don't have age rings. So there's no way that if, you know, once one dies and we look at its stock, we could count the rings and say, okay, this is about, you know, so many thousand of years old or maybe a hundred years of old or, you know, maybe just a couple of decades, but they actually don't have that because the flesh of the stock is a little bit more um, fleshy. It's people have described it as like cork-like. Um, and technically, I mean, as we've know, it's, you know, it's really too, it's more closely related to, uh, it's in the asparagus family. So I guess we can think of a giant asparagus stock if we wanted to. But I think that's good to mention because I think it's common knowledge that Joshua trees can actually grow a long time, but there's actually skepticism surrounding that with some scientists thinking that the Joshua tree can only live to be a couple hundred years old and not over a thousand. Personally, I prefer to live thinking that they can be over a thousand years old, but there's no evidence really necessarily one way or the other. But I think it's important to think about the fact that there is a conversation surrounding how old these trees can grow and that even the physiological components that we can use to date the trees is just isn't quite there. So it's more so based on speculation or on good guesses. And to go more about the uh, morphology of these trees' branches, the inner branches usually go more upright, they're more erect, while the ones that are more on the side generally grow more horizontally. Leaves are, as I like to think of it, kind of sword-like, they're triangular, and they're lined with small teeth at the leaf edge, which is pretty common, pretty standard for plants that are in the agave family or subfamily. And let's talk about how tall they can get because in the botanical literature that I've read, they can, they're described to be about 20 to 70 feet tall. However, that 70 feet tall is pretty, would be pretty extraordinary for a specimen because it's rare for them to exceed about 40 feet tall, which is still pretty crazy, especially thinking about it in the desert. In diameter, they're only about one to three feet big. And it's also rare to uh, see a Joshua tree that has more than one trunk. They usually just have stems branching up in the primary trunk. You wouldn't see like a dual-headed Joshua tree, if you will. So let's get back to talking about some of the animals that depend on the Joshua tree. And let's start that off with talking about the pollinator that has co-evolved with the Joshua tree. This is a moth. It's called Tegeticula synthetica, which I think is an awesome name. I think that's a name that, you know, maybe a metal band could pick up and have songs about different moths or something. Actually, you know, there's probably something like that already out there. Um, and this is an interesting pollinator because it is both a boon and somewhat of a bust for the Joshua tree. Because although the moth has specialized mouth parts that it uses to collect and then disperse the pollen from flower to flower, generally on a different tree, she penetrates the mount the ovary wall of the secondary flower 
to lay her eggs. And when those eggs hatch, the larvae hatch, they come out and feast on the seeds of the Joshua tree and could potentially limit the amount of future availability of the Joshua tree. Although, again, uh, a lot is not really known about this and a lot is just speculated about the different the amount of seed production the Joshua tree can do, uh, the dispersal of seeds, and also the predation of the seeds. How much really does the moth eat and is it really much of an impact? Because what I saw on a government website, it seemed like the number was actually relatively low. But even there, they were saying that there was more research needed to be done. Even so, it's just an interesting concept to think of a pollinator, which we generally think as a you know, form of mutualism where both species are benefiting and not really harming the other, where this one actually has, it both benefits and also kind of takes. Um, but maybe that's also just a misreading of this situation because maybe, you know, without feasting those seeds, there would not be future generations of the yucca moth. And so therefore there also wouldn't be future generations of the Joshua tree. So maybe it's just an extension of their mutual relationship. So some of those species I mentioned earlier that use it as the tree as habitat, I'll just name a few. There's there's the adorable white-tailed antelope squirrel and the Mojave squirrel, uh, which also enjoy eating the fruit. And um, I even saw a description by a scientist of witnessing these squirrels like kind of run back and forth between different trees, feasting on the fruit. It's also the nesting ground for over 25 different bird species, uh, and they like to eat the flowers rather than the fruit. Um, the desert night lizard likes to hide and predate on insects from the comfort of a Joshua tree. And then while I'm not super crazy about anthropods like spiders and scorpions, they also find refuge in the Joshua tree. However, my absolute favorite animal that is related to the Joshua tree is one that's actually extinct. So it is called the Northrotheriops shastensis, or the giant ground sloth, um, also known as the shasta ground sloth. So this was exactly what you probably are picturing. It was just a giant sloth. It was about 550 pounds and about the size of a modern day black bear. It had no upfront teeth. And my favorite bit about all this is that scientists, after studying the skeleton of this animal, deduced that due to the structure of their foot, they could not have walked any other way than with a waddle because they would have been forced to put all their weight on the side of their foot. So I just love the image of this giant ground sloth moving terribly slow through the sweltering desert, looking for food, waddling away, you know, probably in utter peace. I just, I don't know, that image is just so great to me. And yes, uh, the giant ground sloth is related to our modern tree sloths and are actually related to ant, ant eaters and armadillos. So what happened to these things? It's unknown. There's thoughts that maybe it was um, human predation, uh, climate change, and maybe even some sort of hyper disease that just decimated them. And the last known fossil dates back to about the Pleistocene era, or maybe a little, a little after that, maybe around like 10,000 years ago. But this animal and the Joshua tree, they went together like peanut butter and jelly because the sloth would gorge itself and I mean gorgeous itself on a Joshua tree. It seemed like it had absolutely no control. I kind of imagine it like um, Homer Simpson in front of the fridge. But for the ground sloth, the fridge was just the entire Joshua tree. Because there was a cave, a gypsum cave, in southern Nevada that was discovered in the 1930s that was just full of 
dung from these animals. And the dung was comprised almost entirely of the leaf fibers, fruits, and seeds of a Joshua tree. Um, I think there was even a little bit of some bark in there. So they just were like, mm, Joshua tree, you a fine dish. And it was actually because of this that the ground sloth was so important for the Joshua tree because the ground sloth had a pretty far range, although it was slow moving. It could distribute the species farther than it could. So Joshua tree had a bigger expanse. And actually when the ground sloth and the Joshua tree coexisted, um, Joshua tree had a much bigger territory. However, that might not just be due to the ground sloth interaction because it may also have been due to changes in climate or something else. Um, and there are people who highly question the importance of the ground sloth in the health of this species. Because some people say that Joshua tree is struggling because it lacks a relationship with a mammal like the giant ground sloth, and that without it, you know, it's been struggling and is one of the reasons why, you know, it may be facing extinction in the future. That may be closer than we think. Some scientists think that all Joshua trees in Joshua Tree National Park will be extinct by the end of the century. And that is largely due to climate change, although maybe not so much for um, the tree necessarily, but also because of rising temperatures affecting the yucca moth. Probably going to have a much smaller range in which it can exist, and that will, sh will most likely have a direct influence on um, Joshua trees. So it looks like the future of uh, Joshua tree is one of human conservation and hopefully human regeneration of the species. And with all this, of course, uh, the Joshua tree was going to go completely extinct, just probably here in California. But actually, Joshua tree has a long history of human conservation and may have actually gone extinct over almost over almost 100 years ago if it wasn't for the pioneering efforts of Minerva Hoyt. Just a little bit about her. She was a Southern Belle transplant, as the uh, National Park page about her describes her. She came to um, Pasadena. She developed a love of gardening um, and became fascinated with the vegetation of the deserts around her. Because of this, she she frequently visit these natural spaces and was just aghast at their destruction. People would remove cacti and other native flora, and there are even reports of people burning them. So shortly after the death of her husband, she dedicated herself to the protection of these plants. So she actually created a touring exhibit of different specimens that she collected um, and went across the country with them. She founded the International Desert Conservation League to Preserve Desert Landscapes, which even though they're really long names, pretty cool. And through this, she actually came in contact with a landscape architect who was um, commissioned to recommend proposals for new state parks, one of the, which one of those parks was Death Valley and also some of the Joshua Tree Forest in the San Bernardino Mountains north of Palm Springs. She personally hired um, biologists and ecologists to prepare reports on the virtues of the Joshua Tree uh, region here in California and fortunately met Franklin Roosevelt, whose New Deal uh, was very interested in establishment of national parks and monuments as a way to create jobs. So through her efforts, Roosevelt was convinced to ask the National Park Service to prepare a recommendation for the site. However, sadly, in my opinion, issues with railroad companies brought the original 1 million acre project down to 825,000 acres, which doesn't seem like that much, but it's to me sad. It's just that much 
175,000 acres was just left for railroads. However, it didn't become a park. It became a monument in 1936. It didn't become a park until 1994. So without her efforts and dedication to the Joshua Tree regions, the deserts, and the cacti, and if she hadn't organized these events and brought national interest in them, who knows if we really would have you know, much Joshua Trees, if at all, here in California. So I really have her to thank for um, Joshua Tree National Park and for her adroit and forward-thinking ideas on landscape preservation. So let's also go to another interesting figure related to Joshua Tree, and this is George Engelmann, or Georg Engelmann, who was born on February 2nd, 1809. Botany was his, like, hobby. It was, like, what he really liked to do, but he practiced as a physician. His uncle, Friedrich Theodor, was a German pioneer of the state of Illinois, and he was an early American viticulturalist. George, he sailed from Bremen to Baltimore, where he helped his uncle and ultimately would start a newspaper called Das Westland, um, which was about the Mer- American life and customs. To sum it all up, he just created a strong and, and respectable name for himself here in America. Um, and he became so valued for his opinions on cacti, pines, rushes, spurges, that the national government would actually send him specimens so they may gain his knowledge. Although this is just kind of a brief aside, I thought it was kind of strange, but he was also one of the founders of the American Gynecology Society, um, and also the St. Louis School of Midwives, and the St. Louis Line-In Hospital, and also the Polyclinic and Postgraduate School of Medicine at St. Louis. He also found time to dabble in archaeology, and was a founder of the National Academy of Sciences. Another interesting tidbit about him was that Gouda, the guy who wrote Faust, famously, was so impressed with his dissertation, which was medical, but ultimately what he actually what he actually wrote on was on aberrant forms of plants, that Gouda offered Engelman his entire store of unpublished notes and sketches on plants. But I'm not I'm unsure if that ever actually traded hands at all. But whenever you look up his name, that's a story that's expressed because it's just interesting. Also, curiously, going back to his uncle, who's viticulturist, he had made extensive contributions to understanding of parasitic plants and plant disease, especially those in the grape, especially with grapes. And this allowed him to kind of help save the French wine industry in the 1870s. The French government sent scientists, a scientist to come speak with the Missouri State entomologist and Engelman, um, because Engelman had verified certain species that were resistant to something that was kind of like an aphid. And then Engelman personally arranged to have millions of shoots and seeds collected and sent to France, which is pretty crazy. But anyway... This is all just me kind of, I guess, geeking out over unusual facts of history. But he's important in the story of the Acroprofolia because of his role that he played in the Wheeler Survey, which was actually, I believe, the last survey that was conducted here in the States before the National Geological Survey was founded. And it was looking at uh, the life, plant life, the animal life of the region around the 100th Meridian Line. And in there was... Joshua Tree, and because, as I mentioned earlier, he was so respected for his opinion on cacti and succulents, he wrote this entry, the first, the very first entry on the Joshua Tree, which he named the Yucca Brevifolia, and it has a subname Engelman, which comes from him. And I believe I found the description that he wrote for it, and I thought it would be cool to end this episode with a reading of it to see what was i believe it was written in 1871 and this is what he had to say of it tree-like at last much branched the short narrow leaves crowded at the end of the branches 
thick, very rigid, stout, and sharp-pointed. Not narrowed above the broad base, serulate on the margin. Panicle sessile at the end of the branches, fruit large, four inches long, ovate, pointed. Deserts of South Utah through Arizona to Southeast California, where it forms entire forests on the desert plateaus at two to 4,000 feet altitude. Often 20 to 30 feet high and one to two feet in diameter with a thick, rough bark. Leaves four to six inches are in younger specimens, 10 to 12 inches long to one third to one half inches wide. Stifter and stouter pointed than any other in the genus. A flower, when known, may make it necessary to remove it. From Enincia, I believe, is what that says there. So honestly, not too much has changed, um, of course, in our description of the morphology of this plant. Although things of note for me is his reference to the, the entire forests of the Joshua tree. I just can't get over that. I wish that was still a thing. Because um, from what I saw, for about every hectare, or about 2.5 acres, there's about 75 Joshua trees in Joshua Tree National Park. Um, so I don't think that nowhere is that a forest. Um, so I just wish that, that was a view and an experience we could still go and enjoy. Also, the fact that... Um, the height range is a little bit lower than how we have it today, and the fact that no flower was seen, and so they were speculating that it might need to be put into a different family, so or into a different group, which I think is really interesting. So with that, we've gone from a German polymath, a prehistoric giant ground sloth, to you know potentially legendary stories of. Mormon pioneers, to a pioneering conservationist, to tell the story of the Joshua Tree. And I truly think that the unusual, spectacular visual qualities it holds are equaled by the stories that surround it. So with that, I'll see you next time. <laughs>